Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, and I'm our moderator for this program. Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce today's program and our honored guests. George Schultz is former U.S. Secretary of State under President Reagan and distinguished fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's one of only two individuals who have held four different federal cabinet posts, including Secretary of Labor under President Nixon. Let me also say that when one thinks of the epitome of a statesman, Secretary of Schultz very quickly comes to mind. He's also, and perhaps this isn't as well known, been a very effective and dedicated advocate for many years for policies to reduce carbon emissions and combat climate change, shaping decisions from General Motors' decision to build an electric car to Governor Schwarzenegger's path-breaking climate legislation for California. Next, please welcome Dr. Adele Hayutin. She is the Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. She's a renowned economist and demographer, formerly chief economist for the Fremont Group and senior research analyst at Solomon Brothers. And Dr. James Timby is distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and former senior advisor in the U.S. State Department from 1983 through 2016. All in all, Dr. Timby spent about 45 years at the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency and the State Department involved in guiding and uh, contributing his wisdom to every major arms negotiation and agreement the U.S. has been involved in. He's the only individual that I know of who had a bureau at the State Department identified simply by his initial, T. Secretary Schultz and Dr. Timby are co-authors, and Dr. Hayuton is a contributor to the just-published book, A Hinge of History, Governance in an Emerging New World. In their book, our speakers say that the world is at an inflection point, that a number of global demographic, technological, and communications changes are creating challenges and opportunities for the U.S. and other countries and require better governance at the national and global levels. Today, we'll have a conversation about those opportunities facing the United States and the world at this unique point or hinge in history. We'll discuss how to foster international cooperation and strong governance amid these changes and challenges. Uh, Please again welcome Secretary Schultz, Dr. Hayuton, and Dr. Timby. And we're going to begin with some brief presentations by each of our speakers, starting with Dr. Schultz, followed by Ambassador Timby, and then Dr. Hayuton. And before Mr. Schultz begins, I would also like to mention that the new book around which our conversation will be based today wasn't timed to coincide with the presidential election, although it fortuitously does, but rather with a very special milestone for Secretary Schultz. I'd like to wish Mr. Schultz a very happy 100th birthday coming up next month. And Mr. Secretary, over to you. Thank you, Gloria. It's always a privilege to appear on a Commonwealth Club program. You do a great job for all of America, not just San Francisco. I wanted to talk about this book because it is important. There's no partisan content to it at all. It's just a straightforward presentation of important developments that are taking place that whoever is there is going to have to grapple with. 
It's useful to start with another turning point, right after World War II. We were the only country standing. Everybody else was more or less demolished. And we looked around, and what did the Trumans and Atchison's marshals see? They saw two world wars. They saw the first one was settled in rather vindictive terms that helped lead to the second. They saw 52 million people were killed in the Second World War. They saw the Holocaust. They saw the Great Depression and the currency manipulation and protectionism that aggravated it. And they said to themselves, what a crummy world. And then, as you know, after World War I, we walked away from it. But these people said, we're part of it, whether we like it or not. So they recognized a hinge of history and said we were on it. That's a lesson for us. Then they produced Bretton Woods. 44 countries were of Bretton Woods. The star was John Maynard Keynes of Britain. But it was a classical case of pulling together people and constructing what came into being as the ground rules for a new world economy. The International Bank for Reconstruction and Development was created, morphed into the World Bank. General agreements and tariffs and trade were created and became the World Trade Organization, reducing trade-type obligations. So uh, the um, IMF was created to deal with exchange rate issues. So the whole thing was there, and over time it developed well. And then came the Marshall Plan, Again, this was not us telling people what to do. It was us saying to people, if you have a sensible plan and it needs some money, here we are. And we reached out to our former adversaries, Germany and Japan, and we said, why don't you try governing yourself in a democratic manner and be part of the solution and a part of the problem? So that worked. So they did a lot of things. Then comes NATO in the Cold War. And I can tell you, having been very much involved, that NATO was the classic in producing the turning point in the Cold War. So they finished chasing the Indian history, and they worked at it kind of serially, not with some grand conception, but they produced a wonderful result. But if you look carefully now, you see that the economic and security commons they built is gradually eroding. And at the same time, new forces are coming into play that are very powerful. The first is demography. People don't realize how drastically the world demography is being shaken up. All developed countries have falling fertility and rising longevity. Most are losing working age population pretty rapidly. The exceptions to that are the United States, Canada, and Australia. We're still immigration countries. But other than that, people are having their workforce age structure turned upside down, and they're losing working age population. And <laughs> then you see the world population continues to increase. Where is that coming from? Well, Africa still has high fertility, and a couple of countries in East Asia Bangladesh and India. These happen to be places where 
good work was not easy to find, and where drought conditions from global warming come. And when you have drought and you have no money, you got to leave, right? So there's going to be a lot of migration. And we're going to, we, can, we realize that it's going to happen. We have to get ready for it. So we see all kinds of issues that you can portray here. And we know, for example, young people these days will have to change jobs probably three or four times. And B is not going to be like A. So they're going to have to be retrained, a real retraining. And it's obvious that people who have a strong case of travel education are much more effectively retrained than people who don't. That puts a spotlight on the quality of U.S. public education in California. I'm afraid to say it's poor right now, but we know how to do something about it. So these are, and then there are all kinds of things we're going to have to do institutionally to step up to the challenges that are so much a part of this new hinge of history. I think it'd be useful if Adele were to lay out these demographic things. She has some charts. Charts always scare me, but they, She's got charts that tell you what's going on. So, Dale? Sure. Um, I have um, three slides from the book um, that illustrate some of these demographic challenges. And let me start just to set the stage with this slide that is the global population shift, and it provides a global context for some of the geopolitical challenges that we see coming and that Secretary Schultz described. Um, the most startling thing, I believe, is the, the shift to Africa and the explosive growth in Africa. What you see in this slide, if you look on the very left, you see that Africa in 1950 was a small sliver of the total population and has <clears throat> increased sixfold since then and now is 1.3 billion. Um, and what you can see on this slide is that the UN projects that Africa will add over the next 30 years, 1.1 billion people. And then subsequently, over the second half of the century, another 1.8 billion people. So you see the global population increasing from today's 7.8 billion to 10.9 billion. All of that, or almost all of that, will occur in Africa. It's startling. And, and astonishing in terms of what it means. So Africa will increase from 17% of global population today to 39% by the end of the century. The projection assumes the continued decline in the number of births per woman from around four um, gradually declining. But this is a critical assumption. If births are higher, this sweep to Africa will be even bigger. If births are lower, the sweep will be somewhat dampened. So it's critical to pay attention to that, the, the assumption of fertility and, and see what actually happens. Um, there, the key lever for adjusting for, or addressing the fertility challenge is education, uh, especially girls' high school education. Um, that really affects uh, the, fertility, the fertility rate, and that will be important for, for Africa. Um, the challenge basically for Africa is that the population growth outpaces the economic performance and the economic capacity. And the economic 
prospects are further diminished by the threat of climate change and other resource constraints. The climate change will affect the economic prospects and in turn stimulate uh, uh, migration-induced migration to other parts of the world. <clears throat> now, if you look at the, the gray area in the middle, that shows Asia's population, which is projected to peak around 2050 and then decline. So this is, you know, we're starting to see population decline. Um, it will shrink from 60% of the global population today <clears throat> to 43% by the century end. And what you see is that Asia will end the century at about the same population as today. What you don't see is the shift that's going on behind this peak. So there's a regional shift in population from China and East Asia to India and South Asia. China's population peaks in 2030. India's population peaks at a higher rate, at a higher level, and 30 years later. So, so there's definitely a shift. We also see Asia's population growth fueled by Pakistan's explosive growth and Iraq's explosive growth. Um, so Europe is at the bottom of this chart, and it's projected to decline by 16%. North America um, continues its, its slow but steady growth, <clears throat> as Secretary Schultz said, fueled by, by continued immigration. But let's come back to Asia for, for a minute. I want to look at that population arc in some more detail. We can expect this population arc all over the world except for Africa, which has the continued explosive growth. So the arc occurs because population growth slows as fertility rates decline. Um, and then after that, workforces start declining and total populations decline. So you see this arc of population growth. And the timing uh, of the, the, the arc depends on fertility declines and longevity gains. So the timing is really critical. And if you understand how this arc works around the world and for different countries, you can really have an insight into the demographic challenges that countries face. Um, we know that most countries will face slower growth, and we know that workforce declines are going to occur almost everywhere over the next few decades. They're going to start, I mean, they've already started in Europe, and they'll start soon in other parts of the world. So paying attention to this arc of population growth is really critical. Now, I want to um, turn to the next slide, which shows detail for China. China's workforce has already peaked and it's already starting to decline. This is shocking. We always thought of China as the factory floor for the world. So the fact that their workforce is starting to decline is something we really have to adjust to. You can see the, the dark line at the top is working age population. And the run up in working age population over the last 50 years contributed greatly to the economic growth um, that we've heard so much about. Um, but the, the, that population has peaked and it's now declining. So you can see that, I mean, the numbers are really staggering. The working age population um, increased by 200 million over the last 30 years. Um, and it's about to start decreasing and is projected to decline by about 200 million over the next 30 years. So we see a 31% increase up until now followed by a 17% decline going forward. So th this is startling. And it, and it really, um, it, how China deals with this 
workforce shrinkage will really be critical. They can embrace technology, they can change some of their workforce policies, um, but we need to pay attention to what they're doing because it really does affect their um, economic prosperity and their global political power. Um, and now at the same time that the working age population is gonna start shrinking, you can see the, dash, the, the light gray dashed line is the older population, population 65 and older. And it's been gradually increasing up until now, um, but starting now, um, that population is going to double. And the numbers again are staggering from 200 million old people to about 400 million old people within the next 30 years. And we know that China's not very well set up to manage its aging population. The pension system is limited and more, really importantly is the traditional family support system has disappeared. With the one-child policy, um, we now have very small families. The children have no siblings, no aunts and uncles. The family structures really um, changed dramatically. So, so the family support network for older people is basically gone. Um, and so that will be a major challenge for how China manages its aging population. So again, the questions are, how will China adapt and, and when will it start adapting? And um, it will be important for everyone, especially the US, um, to anticipate what these changes are gonna be. There's al already a lot of discussion about what this means for China's political power um, and when you know, China might flex its muscle now in anticipation of its shrinking workforce and what will happen when the workforce actually shrinks and will they embrace technology. So, so we need to, to understand and anticipate some of these um, potential outcomes with China. Um, now, um, China is not the only large economy facing a shrinking workforce. Um, in fact, um, the UN projects that eight out of 15 of the largest economies are projected to have significant workforce declines over the next 40 years. The US is an exception fueled by uh, immigration um, and also because we have a more youthful population than many of the other advanced economies in general. We had, we had a large baby boom and um, a higher fertility rate. So, so we're, we're younger than most of the other large economies. Um, and um, now I want to show a slide of aging in, in Europe. This is my third slide. This will be the last slide that I have. Um, and this shows, um, it's a little complicated, but, but it shows the percent of the population that's 65 years and older. And the focus is on Europe because we know that Europe's biggest demographic challenge is its aging population and the related shrinking workforces. So at the very bottom of, of this group, this cluster of, of countries, you see the US, it's a little dotted line. Um, and we had, you know, we, we, you know, we think about our aging baby boomers and we did have a run up in the, in the percent of our population that was old, but it's, it's, it's um, mild compared to what is going on in the rest of the world. So our um, percent 65 plus goes from 17% today to 28% by mid-century. At the top of the chart is Japan, which has been the, one of the most rapidly aging countries with, along with China. And its share of, of 65 plus has gone from 28, or will is projected to go from 28% today to 38% by mid-century. These are huge 
burdens of aging and the, the fiscal challenges are enormous. Now, in between um, Japan and the U.S. as the sort of bra brackets what's going on in, in Europe, you see you know, a variety of, of, of patterns of aging, but, but all these large um, countries in Europe are, are rapidly aging. Um, you can see that the U.K., which is the dark the, the black line just above the U.S. is, is younger. Um, the U.K. and France tend to tend to, or have been younger than than the other countries. Um, Italy and Spain are among the most rapidly aging. So so with this aging comes the challenges of shrinking workforces and uh, the questions of how how this will be managed. And one one of the ways to manage the shrinking workforces is through um, technology and um, both that technology in terms of uh, caring for an aging population, but also in terms of increasing productivity. So this is one of the ways that that these countries will address their shrinking workforces. And we spent a lot of time in this project on technology changes, and and Jim Timby can can address that. One of the thank you, Adele. One of the little aspects of the one-child policy in China that always interests me is there was a bias toward boys. So the result of the one-child policy is a no-child result. <laughs> so their demographics is something to worry about. Now, Jim Timby's going to tell us all about the scientific and technological changes that are causing this hinge in history. It's big-time stuff. As you've heard from Secretary Schultz, our thesis is that transformational changes are underway. Demographics are shifting, technologies are rapidly advancing, the security and economic commons that was put in place after World War II is eroding, the climate is warming, the nature of conflict is changing. All of this is taking place at a rapid rate. <clears throat> the goal of our project is first to understand these transformational forces, to fully appreciate the challenges facing those countries where the society is aging and the workforce is shrinking, and other countries where the population is young and the needs and needs better education and a growing economy to provide more jobs, to understand the implications of artificial intelligence for the workplace and for our national security, how social media complicates governance over diversity, how 3D printing and other modern manufacturing techniques can make things near where they are needed, reversing globalization. These transformational forces present opportunities. They have great potential to make us more prosperous, more secure, more healthy, better informed, better citizens. But they also raise problems. Disruption of the workplace, the spread of misinformation, migration, security challenges, so forth. So this brings us to the second part of our project, to suggest how best to proceed to take advantage of the opportunities to capture the benefits of changing demographics and advancing technologies and mitigate the problems. And one of our conclusions is that the United States is in a better position than many other countries to succeed, to ride this wave, to take advantage of the technological and demographic opportunities before us. Our industries and universities are at the forefront of new technologies. Our long experience in diversity is an asset. Talented people are attracted to the United States from all over the world. 
Our tradition of immigration allows us to maintain the size of our workforce, even as we age. Workers will need new skills for new jobs, but we know how to do that. Community colleges can support transitions to new jobs. The biggest problem we see is the shortfall in K-12 education. That is a problem that will need to be addressed. But overall, the United States is in a better position than most to take advantage of the opportunities and mitigate the problems. And the last point I would make is that these forces are global and most countries are facing these challenges. There's a lot of potential for working together with allies, with partners and friends, and with competitors as well, and for return to our traditional approach of international cooperation and leadership. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you, Jim. Just a couple of added points. I think it's a, the case that the 3D printing technology will gradually make it possible to produce most of the things you want near where you are. To put it another way, deglobalization will take place. That's tremendously disruptive in many respects, as is easy enough to see. So I think that's uh, something to take note of. I remember when I was a graduate student at MIT, we were surrounded by textile mills, and they all left. They all left for low-cost labor. And then they left the South for Asia for low-cost labor. And now that low-cost labor is not going to mean so much, so they're going to come back home. What do you know? So that's it. But gee, globalization is a huge event. Makes big-time uh, operation. Thank you, Secretary Schultz, Ambassador Timby, Dr. Hayutan. Lots of questions, some from me, some from our audience are coming in. Wait a minute, um, wait a minute. let me show you. There is a book. Yes. A Hinge of History, there it is. And thank you. So um, one of the first questions that comes to mind is, uh, how much has COVID changed any of the factors, the trends that you're looking at? You have a very interesting story at the beginning of the book about how about a year and a half ago, you had a presentation to your group, which basically predicted uh, a, an animal to human uh, virus such as COVID and many of the consequences of this. So you, you had heard about this. Now, you know, your, your, your final uh, meetings of your group took place via Zoom uh, because the pandemic had struck. Does the pandemic change or just accentuate the factors that you have talked about? I think the pandemic has added a new dimension to our capabilities. And in the future, if we ever get to one, we need to have some combination of on-site things that we do combined with Zoom. For example, we have the Annenberg Conference room where we did our um, events, but lots more people wanted to come than could come. So we should fit it up with Zoom capability and people could tune in and expand. I think there are all kinds of things like that that can be done. But, but for, for instance, on, on jobs, you talk about the 7 million unfilled jobs in the U.S. due to mismatch of training and uh, capabilities with the kind of jobs. Have factors like that been fundamentally changed uh, by, by COVID, by the economic recession? Well, the, the COVID has obviously cut down demand for jobs. It's been a dis big disruptor. 
I think over a period of time, we've always had a little surplus of job-seeking workers, and that's why we've had such a healthy economy. Any other factors that have changed your views or extended your views uh, from COVID? I would just make a comment on on the demographic impacts. Um, we don't know yet. There have been some studies, but but the general uh, uh, idea is that COVID will dampen life expectancies in some places, um, but um, but we don't really know yet. And so we'll be watching for for some of those um, uh, effects. At what what's what we'll see is that the direct effects are small, but the indirect effects on health and um, people um, postponing health care, um, people postponing their education, especially children, um, the impacts on children are, are really significant. And so this could affect overall health and, and, and well-being in general. So, so we'll be looking for those kinds of studies that look at the, the global effects in terms of, of health and healthy life expectancy. Yeah, and like, like the other changes that we discuss in the book, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is global, and it can only really be addressed effectively through international cooperation. Countries can mutually benefit by sharing information, learning from one another, supporting each other, <clears throat> jointly developing and producing therapeutics, vaccines, jointly preparing for the next, next outbreak. We can probably do a lot better in the future than we have for COVID-19 in working together with our, with our allies and friends and partners. We have, as a member of our group, a big contributor, a woman named Lucy Shapiro. She's the smartest person in any room she's in. And she's fun. But she says, and she said this before the COVID broke out, that we're in a period where there's much more contact between animals and persons in places that now travel around. The travel is very extensive, and climate change puts something on top of all this, and we can expect pandemics to come along. And so we think of somehow what we're doing now getting over with and going back to normal. And Lucy's saying, there's not going to be the old normal. We're going to have to work out a different pattern. So the trends that you posit, the uh, trends in demographics, in technology, AI, et cetera, uh, affect different countries differentially, as you've pointed out. How is the U.S. particularly set up to handle these challenges? Well, I think we're, as Jim Timby was saying, we have a resilient workforce. One of the things we don't have is a good public education system. We know how to do it, but somehow we're not doing it. So that's something that we need to look at very hard. But uh, we can give a lot of leadership. We have the capacity and the flexibility to do these things. But I think it's important for somebody like after World War II to stand up and say, what a different world here it is. Here's what's happening to us as a global community. And what can we do about it together? So I, I think this notion of America first, and we're just all of our own, is the wrong idea entirely. It's the old idea that we're after World War One, that we're two, that works so well, that we're part of it, whether we like it or not. I think other, another part of the answer, Gloria, is that you know our industries and our universities are at the forefront of these leading edge technologies. We have long experience in diversity. That's an asset. 
talented people from all over the world are attracted uh, to the United States. We have a tradition of migration that allows us to maintain the size of our workforce. So we have a lot of advantages. Uh, and we think that the, the United States is therefore in a pretty good position, uh, certainly compared to the rest of the world. We have, there are problems and issues that need to be addressed, but we're in a, in a pretty good position to, to reap the, the benefits of advancing technology and deal with the problems. What about other countries? I mean, I read the chapter on Russia, which pretty much described Russia as it was many, many years ago, uh, pouring its technological research and funds into military systems and so on. So how does Russia stack up in the technological demographic competitive world based on the trends that you see? Well, they are not a technology leader. And they have an aging population, a shrinking workforce. They have a very modest economy based on hydrocarbons. So if, if we maintain our strengths, you know, our strengths in, in technology, our economic strength, our military strength, if we maintain the benefits of partnerships and allies, we can be in a very good position to work with Russia on nuclear issues, on rules of the road, space, cyberspace. We could sit down with Russia with a list of concerns and, and seek to resolve resolve some of them uh, with a reasonable prospect of success. Just to give an example, Russia has said they are willing to renew the New START Treaty and to put a cap on nuclear weapons. And we're dodging around saying, we ought to do this, we ought to do that. Personally, I would grab that offer and say, okay, let's sit down and have extended talks on other things that we could do. But put those two things in the bin. You're basically saying the U.S. is um, has advantages. We're strong. We're powerful compared to these other countries, and we should utilize uh, for good and for leadership those uh, qualities with Russia and with others. And we're not talking about leadership for the sake of leadership. We're saying here is a vacuum, and it needs to be filled. And we can fill it, so let's do it. Now, what about China? Uh, Dr. Hayutin, you uh, diagrammed their rising and then falling birth rate. What's their comparative advantage in this new world of uh, the factors uh, that you're talking about? Well, the comparative advantage is they have a lot of smart people, and they can create things. But at least as I see it, there have been three Chinas. There was Mao's China. He put it together, and he ran it in a very dictatorial way. You remember the Great Leap Forward? <clears throat> then came Zhao, and he opened it up. I remember him telling me, I know the Chinese people, they work hard, and they're very ingenious if you give them half a chance. So I'm opening things up, and um, at the same time, he had a rapidly expanding labor force. So as a result of that, we saw this gigantic explosion in China's economy. Now, Xi has the third China, and he has gone back more or less to the same kind of policies that Mao had, very restrictive. And his labor force changes, Bill brought out, is, is, is very small, not at all. So his chances of getting economic growth out of this are practically none. So that means we want to work with China on the basis of 
their realities. We'd, we'd build China up to be some kind of a mammoth threat, and it isn't. So, uh, in fact, when you look at the factors that you're uh, diagramming, uh, the threats seem less than we typically are thinking of them in terms of our own strength and capabilities. Coming back to the U.S. for a second. They're not, not uh, a country that we have to worry about and contest with and so on. I'm just saying that there are weak points in their system, and they'll point them out in the labor force material that are, you can't get away from them. In terms of our own strength, you talk about immigration as a strength because among uh, developed countries, uh, the U.S., as opposed to Europe, still has a pretty good immigration rate, as well as Canada and Australia. And so, um, obviously, we need an immigration policy. How to handle the issues we've had with immigration versus the strengths that we get from immigration. Right. We need an immigration policy. And they get proposed, and they don't seem to go anywhere. But I remember one day, Lee Kuan Yew arrived in San Francisco. He's the guy who put Singapore together, brilliant man. And he was my friend. I said, hi, welcome to San Francisco. Glad to see you here. What are you doing? He said, well, there's something going on down there at Stanford called Silicon Valley that you Americans are running. And I want to find out what you Americans are doing down there because I might learn something from you Americans that I could bring back to Singapore. So I said, um, well, how are you going to go about that? And he said, well, I'm going to start a little Singapore investment capital firm. The way I found out about something is be part of it and see how it works. And I said, well, when you get down there, how are you going to find there are people there from all over the world? And he said, I know that, but it could only happen in America. Big message there. Turning to another facet of American society, this is an audience question. Uh, what sea change is most necessary to improve public education in the U.S.? Open it up. School choice. Charter schools. Support them. Support people being able to take tuition to wherever they want. That was been done around Washington. And that's gaining ground, but the teachers' union is very powerful. They have lots of money and a lot of state legislatures don't book them. And they have given us an education system where in many cases, it's impossible to increase the salaries of the teachers because this is gigantic uh, retirement fund built, being built up and the money goes straight to the retirement fund. So it's almost as though they think schools are, are there to employ people whereas we think schools are there to educate people. We've got to change. Just must do it. Can I add, Gloria, that technology has not yet had the impact on improving K-12 education that it has had in, in, in other areas. I mean, in health, telehealth has been a big success. Zoom works well for our session today and, and for many, many other uh, workplaces. Uh, and, and Zoom works at the college level, maybe the high school level but it doesn't work for elementary school. And, and this is a big uh, opening, I think, for technology looking forward. That technology-enabled personalized learning could well be a major player in the necessary improvement in K-12 education. So um, 
we've, we've talked a little bit about new modes of communication, uh, how uh, the traditional media has declined, how we have uh, essentially a great deal of communication going on globally, and yet we have leaders, demagogues, et cetera, who are able to use means of reaching people directly uh, for their purposes. So how do you assess and how do we cope best with the new, the changes in media and communications that are part of these trends? Well, you may know, Gloria, that San Francisco is one of the most diverse cities in the world. We have something like 70 consulates. Every country has a national day like we have the 4th of July. So every, every country's national day, my wife, Charlotte, has a party at City Hall. She runs up that country's flag. She plays its national anthem. She gets a cookie baked with some insignia of theirs on it. And she has a little party. And the party, we, we recognize the diversity that you bring to our city. It adds to our creativity. Welcome. So the notion here is you're going over diversity by recognizing the diversity, but translating it into its potential contribution. I had the same point made to me once in 1969, I was in Jerusalem. And for some reason, I was lucky enough that the iconic mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kollek, took me over. We went from one party to another, everybody having a blast, all different. And all of a sudden, he's taking me to his office, and I realized Teddy's teaching me something. So he said, you saw all those parties that we went to, all different, all having a good time. It's my job as mayor of Jerusalem is to make it a great place. And I do that by letting them express themselves as they want, as long as they don't do it in such a way that prevents somebody else from expressing themselves, and that they're all glad to live under what he called the Golden Dome of Jerusalem. So you let diversity have its say, but you keep it under some Golden Dome that everybody values. Well, for, the, for those watching who don't know, uh, Secretary Schultz's wife, Charlotte, has been for many, many years, the chief of protocol for the city of San Francisco and also the chief of protocol for the state of California. And I have been to some of her wonderful celebrations. Truly uh, in San Francisco, diversity is celebrated every day, or at least was when we did things in person. And uh, so I, I underline what Secretary Schultz says. There's a lot of symbolism that can be um, recognized for cultural diversity by just acknowledging and celebrating people's heritage. It's also true. Charlotte knows how to throw a party. <laughs> that, that is indeed true. Uh, another question from the audience, turning to Africa, what are the global implications of Africa's projected population growth without adequate economic resources? Well, the main implication is that we'll see uh, lots of migration out of Africa. Uh, especially as the climate uh, warms even more. Um, and this will be a challenge to, to many countries. Uh, one of the ways that we could deal with that is if we could get together and work on some of the challenges that Africa faces that, that stimulate migration. So if we could help the African countries uh, develop their economies, uh, through education, of especially girls, um, through developing healthcare systems, uh, then they would have better economic prospects at home and wouldn't be forced to, 
to uh, migrate. The other thing is if there was some way to dampen the population growth, that would be great. But um, the, the, the numbers that I showed assume a fertility decline. Um, and we know that in Africa, there's, there's a culture of large families. And so we, we want to, you know, we don't want to encourage a situation uh, where there are unintended consequences of, of fertility policies, um, and we can we can help them um, by encouraging education of women and girls, and 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 that will be that will be critical. So so one thing is to try to help them help uh, through through advice and investment uh, develop uh, greater economic prospects. One. Uh key component of this uh, is concern about climate change. So what immediate steps should the US and the global community take on climate change? Here is the answer. I know you've been waiting for this. <laughs> Number one, put a hefty tax on climate, on carbon, and then refund the money that you've collected to everybody with a social security number an equal amount. So it's a progressive tax. But there's an, but it's not a tax that has any fiscal drag on the economy because it's never really been taken out of the economy. And then impose a tax on the carbon and anything that we import. So people who send things here are under the same carbon restriction as we are. So I've been pushing this for a long time, first with Gary Becker, we wrote things, and Baker, Jim Baker and I have been pushing it. It's beginning to gradually get hold. And we say, get rid of all the regulations. Just put on a tax. People see a high price, they react to that price, and you'll get what you want. And then the other side of the coin is, if somebody says, okay, I want to get what I want, what do I do? That's where I think there should be a very strong support for energy R&D. I know at Stanford and MIT, I'm familiar with both of those programs. They're very strong programs and productive, but I'm sure elsewhere too. And these are the places that produce things. I might say at the Stanford one and also MIT, industry people are there. They see something good, they want to buy into it, so we charge them to be part of it. But it's a good thing because if we invent something and develop it a little bit, we don't know how to bring it to market, but they do. So they can bring it to market. So I think it's a good setup. So if you think of uh, danger as a clock, like the bulletin of the atomic scientist clock, but on climate change, how close to midnight are we on climate change? How serious is the situation? I think it's very serious. And the fact of the matter is climate has already changed, past tense. It's keeping changing. But you can look at the effects of it. The ice cap over the Arctic is melting fast. Have you seen these streams coming off from the ice cap of Greenland? It's like a big river. The reefs, like the Great Barrier Reef, have been uh, affected in such a way that they no longer have the fish nourishing capacity they used to have. Um, I'm sure there has been a contribution to the forest fires in California because of the dryness that goes with the heat. And uh, 
there are other things involved, but it's part of the process. So I think it's a major development, and we need to get a hold of it, and the way to do it is the Schultz way. Um, so we've been talking about changes in immigration policy, climate change policy, uh, American leadership. Uh, I note the U.S. is not part of this new Asia-Pacific trade pact, economic zone that China has uh, led the uh, led the process on, so more leadership in international processes and institutions. This that's that's the result of the fact that we withdrew from one that was all set up. All right. And now they're leaving us out. I know. So this, the uh, suggestions you're making sound nothing like what we've been doing for the last few years. Uh, somebody in the audience wants to know, are you optimistic? Where should the next administration begin? Uh, who, who has uh, a thoughts on uh, how the next administration can take us in the directions in which we need to go? Well, obviously you need some combination of state, treasury, and defense, and interior to work together on these things. And that can be done. I had innumerable instances when I was in office and the various things I did where you work effectively with others. And let me say, I think there's one phrase that describes what the atmosphere must be like. And that phrase is, trust is the coin of the realm. Where you can be trusted, people trust you, you can get a lot done. I remember when I was in Marine Corps boot camp, the sergeant handed me my rifle. And he says, take good care of this rifle, it's your best friend. And remember one thing, Never point this rifle at anybody unless you're willing to pull the trigger. No empty threats. And then a while later, I'm getting ready to go in the cabinet. And a wonderful man there named Bryce Harlow gave me a severe lecture. He said, when you're dealing with members of Congress, they're often, they do something and you say you'll do something. Do what you say you're going to do so people trust you. If they don't trust you, they can't deal with you. But trust is the coin of the realm. And I think we have to get that atmosphere back into the Washington scene. Trust is the coin of the realm. Then you can deal with people. Thank you, Mr. Schultz. Other thoughts? Uh, where should a new administration start? Well, I, what their problems are is where they start. But I think they need to have a strategy of some kind, some overarching analysis of uh, what's going on and what how they are going to fit into it. I hope they'll take the trouble to read our book. Oh, it's not written in a political way, but it's suggesting lots of problems. But uh, they do that. Then they, they have obvious foreign affairs things to work on that uh, need some work. I hope they don't raise taxes and do all the things that Biden has threatened because they'll ruin the economy if they do. So more audience questions. Can you comment on the emergence of ultranationalism in the U.S. and Europe? Well, the trouble is it's been going the other way. We've had the America First instinct, which is less international. Well, it has resulted in Europeans paying a little more of their share of what NATO costs us. But I think... We have to have a resurrection 
of this notion that I mentioned of the people right after World War II. The world is a mess, and we're part of it, whether we like it or not. Therefore, we need to engage and try to make it good. It's not just for other people, it's for us. We're part of it, whether we like it or not. The better it is, the better off we are. Related question, and anyone else jump in, please. How do we facilitate the enlightened global future you project with the xenophobic and isolationist sentiments we see in the U.S.? Well, Jim Tembe lives in Washington. He knows the answer. <laughs> I, I wish I did know the answer. Um, these these um, uh, challenges uh, come in, in many different forms. Uh, I mean, we've seen a, a big advance in uh, military technology, new navigation, communication technologies <clears throat> enabled uh, development of smart, inexpensive, lethal systems strike with great precision. Uh, and we've seen Iranian drones used with good effect against Saudi Arabia. We've just recently seen, seen um, Azerbaijan <clears throat> use these new technologies uh, in their conflict with, with Armenia to good effect. Uh, the, <clears throat> we're working in a different, in a different world. And I think uh, uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, face, up, uh, face up to that. I have a suggestion for an easy thing that can be done. And that is to understand the demography of the world's populations, to understand what drives individual countries. And the thing about demography, it's much easier than technology and economics because you can see it coming. It's, it's like a window on the future. And if you look in the right places, you can see what's unfolding. And we need to look in the right places and then we can understand our allies. We can understand our competitors. We can understand uh, the countries that threaten us, and we can anticipate what's happening. And if we do that, and it's pretty easy because we've got lots of data and we've got lots of experts, we, we can understand what is driving our partners and allies and, and competitors, and then we can develop strategies that address those things. So that's an easy thing. And then in conjunction with that, if we look at the demography and we, we look at our own numbers, we will recognize that we need immigration to drive our economy to help drive our economy. So, so I think we need some education and we need a better immigration policy based on the demographics that we see. And I think if we look in the right places, we can, we can develop those strategies. So you talk about major changes and trends in several areas, the changing demographics, uh, changes in automation and AI, changing the job market essentially, changes in the means of production, and the changes in information and communications. Um, so Ambassador Timby and Mr. Schultz, you've spent a collective century or so working in the American government. Given this uh, template for what to look at and new policies that are needed, where should this live? Who should pick this up in the American government? How could it be structured? How does this get, how do these Oh, oh, um, realizations and trends become part of our operating uh, approach in the U.S.? Well, I think there are units in the U.S. government that should be the centers of conversation. The National Security Council is clearly one, and the Treasury ought to be part of it. 
and let them discuss these issues. And um, not in any political way, but just to, how to understand what's happening and suggest what to do about it. And then go to the Congress and say, here's our understanding. And not suggesting any here, we're just trying to enhance everybody's understanding. And then try to work through problems together. And on a trust is the coin of the realm basis, we can get somewhere. I think people are ready to get serious. I would hope that a guy like Joe Biden, who I remember, I remember I used to duke it out with him in the Foreign Relations Committee. But Joe's came away with mutual respect and friendship. He's that kind of a guy, kind of argument, but it's not. not I, I would recommend to him that he, after he's in office, he organize a little White House dinner and invite Nancy and uh, Kevin, invite Mitch and um, the Democrat. Um, Silver. The four of them, and then come with his chief of staff. So there's just six people in the room. Um, have a nice dinner. The White House can produce a beautiful dinner, wonderful hors d'oeuvres, and sit and have a little cocktail and a little dinner. And then when dessert time comes, say, let's do a little business. The American, what we have in this room are the leaders. What we decide pretty goes. goes. And the American people put us here to solve problems. They didn't put us here to create problems. They put us here to solve problems. So here's a soluble one, I think. And I'll put it on the table. And let's scramble around and see if we can come to a conclusion. And I think on at least some minimal basis, some of these things that are obviously need to be done on unemployment and so on could be done. So get started and then say, I'm going to have these dinners about once every couple of weeks. And it'll be just us, and we'll sit and talk and see if we can't solve problems. So we're thinking of a problem that we ought to be able to solve and bring it in. Maybe that could start something. Sort of okay, like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan used to do something like that. He had Tip O'Neill, who was a pal. And um, they, could, uh, they could argue a lot, but then they got together and hoist a beer. But he used to have movies in the White House. And he'd invite a movie star and have some people come up and watch the movie and then sit around for a while. And it was a, it was a good thing. People liked to come. It was fun. And uh, it gave a sense of community. Uh, Ambassador Timby, you're a longtime government uh, leader. Well, I think, uh, you know, these uh, large transformational forces we're talking about, they, they affect really everybody in this country and they affect other country, all the other countries as well. And, and so I think uh, there's every reason to believe that uh, if we uh, s sit down with ourselves, with others, with a full recognition of the issues that we're up against, what they're up against, in many, in many cases, they're similar. There's really no reason to believe that we couldn't uh, uh, work work uh, work through some of these questions and resolve some of these uh, uh, some of these issues. As long as we you know understand uh, how it affects them, how it affects us, I, th I think there's every reason to believe that that an approach like that could be successful internally and also with 
with other countries. Well, I think this book is worth people reading. And even if they don't buy the general argument, if you read the chapter on China, you learn a lot about China. It's different from people thinking. Same about Russia and so on. Yes, indeed. Well, we're nearing the end of our time to talk today. Um, I would like to turn to Secretary Schultz uh, for uh, his words of wisdom. You've left us with a blueprint here uh, to explore for the future for the U.S. and the world, but you're about to turn 100. Any other thoughts to uh, share with the listeners and, and viewers today? I say 100 and counting, but uh, I've, well, thought I know you, uh... I've thought about it, and Charlotte has encouraged me. And I wrote a little essay, and I think it'll be published in the Washington Post on my 100th birthday. It's entitled, Trust is the Coin of the Realm. So I think in my work, I've always had that in mind. If I'm trustworthy, then I can work with people. If I'm not trustworthy, they won't work with me, or at least they don't have confidence. So trust is the coin of the realm. Always remember that. I would like to thank our entire trustworthy panel today. Uh, first of all, for writing such a terrific book that has so many ideas for how the U.S. could succeed and provide leadership, positive leadership in the world. Uh, they include Ambassador Jim Timby, uh, Dr. Adele Hayutam, and former Secretary of State George Schultz. And uh, let me just particularly say uh, thank you to everyone for your work and your service, but particularly you, Secretary Schultz, thank you for your long, long and dedicated service to this country. So many wonderful institutions and groups in the country, and I'm uh, just so pleased that you were able to be with us today. Don't forget the United States Marine Corps. Semper Fi. That's true. So uh, let me just draw this program to a close uh, today. Uh, you've been listening to and watching a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Uh, all of you who um, uh, uh, are watching programs and supporting the Commonwealth Club. We really appreciate that. Uh, we've been able to bring you over 310 virtual programs since the beginning of Shelter at Home. So thank you so much to our audience and to our supporters, as well as to our wonderful panelists. Now this program of, of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.